good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to this week's episode of The Quarterdeck. This week, we continue our story of our reading of our book with the 1st Marine Division in Iraq of 2003, No Greater Friend, No Worst Enemy. The division is prepped. They're ready to go. We're going to take a look at 19 March, as the division is now poised for battle. In our hero highlights this week, we take a look at the story in the citation of Captain John Harold Leems, United States Marine Corps. Drop and give me 25. I'm the gunny. It's time for the gunny. It's time. It's time. The quarter deck. Lights, lights, lights. Get in line right now. You got 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. Hello, my bunch of knuckle-dragging, beer-drinking, hard-charging devil dogs. You're listening to The Quarterdeck. I am your host, Miguel, the Gunny Signs. Get out the bus! I do solemnly swear. I do solemnly swear. That I will support you, Phil. The Constitution of the United States. Against all enemies, foreign and domestic. As we're getting closer and closer towards the end of October, as we all know, well, as all United States Marines know, it is getting closer and closer to the time that we celebrate our beloved birthday of our Marine Corps. It's a huge celebration that we celebrate every single year, and we always take that opportunity to ensure that we celebrate it to the best of our abilities. But let's go ahead and take a look back. I want to take a look back at the history of the Marine Corps, so this is just a brief history on the Marine Corps, just to get us in the spirit of the celebration of the times to come, because as we know, from here on out, units across the Marine Corps will be celebrating their birthday, and what better way to do that than to go and take a look at what happened in history in the Marine Corps. On November 10th, 1775, as we know, the Second Continental Congress had a meeting in Philadelphia, and they passed a resolution that stated that two battalions of Marines will be raised. And this was for the services as a landing force with the fleet. Now, this resolution established that the Continental Marines and marked the birth date of the United States Marine Corps. And they were going to be serving on land and on sea, So these first Marines were distinguishing themselves in a number of important operations that including their first amphibious raid that was back at the Bahamas in March of 1776. That's a long time ago. And they were under the command of Captain, who later became a major, Samuel Nicholas. And in the Marine Corps history, we all know a lot about Captain Samuel Nicholas. Uh, He was the first commissioned officer in the Continental Marines. Nicholas remained the senior Marine officer throughout the American Revolution and is considered to be the first Marine commandant that the Marine Corps ever had. The treaty that happened in Paris in 1783 brought it into the Revolutionary War as the last day of the Navy ships were finally sold, the Continental Navy and the Marines went out of existence. That was a sad day. A sad day when that happened. Now, following the Revolutionary War... The formal reestablishment of the Marine Corps on 11 July of 1798, Marines again saw action in the Quasi-War with France 
and they landed in Santo Domingo and took part in many operations against the Barbary pirates along the shores of Tripoli. They also took a part in numerous naval operations during the War of 1812, as well as participating in the defense of Washington and Blandesburg, Maryland, and fought alongside Andrew Jackson in the defeat of the British at New Orleans. Now, decades that were following the War of 1812 saw that the Marines were protecting American interests around the world in the Caribbean, the Falkland Islands, Sumatra, and off the coast of West Africa, and also to home an operation against the Seminole Indians that were in Florida. During the Mexican War, this was during 1846 to 1848, Marines seized enemy seaports on both Gulfs and the Pacific Coast. A battalion of Marines that was joined General Winfield Scott's army at Pueblo, and they fought all the ways, all the way up to Halls of Montezuma in Mexico City. Marines also served ashore and afloat in the Civil War from 1861 to 1865, and even though the services was with the Navy, a battalion fought at Bull Run, and other units saw action with the blockading squadrons at Cape Hadras, New Orleans, Charleston, and Fort Fisher. The last third of the 19th century saw the Marines making numerous landings throughout the world, especially in the Orient and the Caribbean area. Now, following the Spanish-American War, this was in 1898, this was when Marines performed with valor in Cuba, Puerto Rico, Guam, the Philippines. The Corps entered this era of expansion and professional development during this time. It saw active service again in the Philippine insurgent in 1899 to 1902, a Boxer Rebellion in China in the 1900s, and in numerous other nations, including Nicaragua, Panama, Cuba, Mexico, and even Haiti. Now, let's get on to World War I. The Marine Corps distinguished itself on the battlefields of France. This was as the 4th Marine Brigade earned the title of Devil Dogs, or Tufahunden, as they were called. Uh, because of their heroic action during the 1918 battle at Bella Woods, Soshuns, St. Michael Blank Mount, and the final Muse Argonne offensive. Now, the Marine Aviation dates all the way back into 1912. They also played a part in the war effort as the Marine pilots flew uh, day bomber missions over France and Belgium. Over 30,000 Marines that served in France and more than a third were killed or wounded in six months of intense fighting. Wow, amazing. So during these two decades before World War II, the Marine Corps began to develop an earnest and doctrine equipment and organizations that were needed for the amphibious warfare because they realized that this was a huge asset that they needed to master this to be able to get the Marines on shore off the ships. Now, the success of of the effort was first proven in Guadalcanal, which was considered to be the first amphibious landing. Then, in Bougainville, Tarawa, New Britain, Kwajane, Aintwak, Saipan, Guam, Tanan, Peleliu, Iwo Jima, and Okinawa. So by the end of the war in 1945, the Marine Corps had grown to include six divisions, five air wings, and supporting troops. Its strengths in World War II peaked in at that time, to 485,113 Marines. The war did cost the Marines nearly 87,000 dead or wounded and 82 Marines that had earned the Medal of Honor during that time. 
while these marine units took part in the post-war occupation of Japan and North China, there were studies that were undertaken at Quantico, Virginia, which concentrated on attaining a vertical envelopment capability for the Marine Corps through the use of helicopters. Now, landing at Incheon, Korea, uh, in 1950 in September, the Marines provided that the doctrine of the amphibious assault was still viable and necessary. So after the recapture of Seoul, the Marines advanced to the Chosen Reservoir only to see that the Chinese communists entered the war. Now, the Frozen Chosen, you know, it was the coldest and brutalest battle that the Marine Corps had at that time because none of those Marines were prepared for the cold that happened during that time. So after many years of offensiveness, counteroffensiveness, and endless trench warfare, the occupation of duty, the last Marine group troops were withdrawn in March of 1955. More than 25,000 Marines were killed and wounded during the Korean War. That's a lot as well. Now on to 1958 in July. A brigade had seized force landed in Lebanon to restore the order. And during the, this was during the Cuban Missile Crisis in October of 1962. A large amphibious force was marshaled, but it didn't land. In 1965, in April, a brigade of Marines landed in the Dominican Republic, and this was in order to protect Americans and evacuate those that wished to leave during that time. The landing of the 9th Marine Expedition Brigade in Da Nang in 65 marked the beginning of the large-scale Marine envelopment in Vietnam. So by that summer in 1968, after the enemy's Tet Offensive, the Marine Corps built its strength in Vietnam, rose to a peak of approximately 85,000 in Vietnam. Huge number, huge push. And the Marine withdrawal began in 1969 as the South Vietnamese began to assume a larger role in the fighting and eventually the last Marine ground forces were out of Vietnam by June of 1971. This, at that time, was the longest war ever in Vietnam. In the history of the Marine Corps, uh, exacted a high cost, as well as over 13,000 Marines killed and more than 88,000 that were wounded. In 1975, that spring, the Marines evacuated embassy staffs, American citizens, refugees in Phong Phen, Cambodia, and Saigon, the Republic of Vietnam. And in May, the Marines played an intrigual role in the rescue of the crew of the SS Mayaguense when it was captured off the coast of Cambodia. Now, in 1970, around the mid-time frame of that, it saw the Marine Corps assume in a, assuming an increasingly significant role in the defending of NATO's northern flank as amphibious units in the 2nd Marine Division participated in exercises throughout northern Europe. The Marine Corps also played a key role in the development of the Rapid Deployment Force, a multi-service organization that was created to ensure a flexible, timely military response around the world whenever it was needed. So the maritime prepositioning ships, the MPS ships, these were the ships that were prepositioned for the Marine Corps to have. The concept was developed to enhance this capability that was prestaging equipment needed for combat in the vicinity of the designated areas of operation and to reduce the response time as Marines traveled by air to link up MPS assets. 
Now, those of you that have been following along, you know that the 1st Marine Division, when they headed into Iraq down there in 2003, they used these MPA ships for all the gear and the equipment that they used once they got into country. Now, moving on to the 1980s, let's go back a little bit. This brought an increasing number of terrorist attacks on the U.S. embassies around the world, Marine security guards. Uh, under the direction of the State Department, they did continue to serve with distinction in the face of this challenge because it was a huge challenge. In 1982, in August, Marine units landed at Beirut in Lebanon as a part of a multinational peacekeeping force. And this was for 19 months that these units faced the hazards of their mission with courage and professionalism. In 1983, in October, Marines took part in the highly successful short-notice innovation in Grenada. As the decade of 1980s came to a close, Marines were summoned to respond to the instability in Central America and Operations Just Cause was launched in Panama in December of 1989. This was to protect American lives and to restore democratic process in that nation. So less than a year later, in 1990, in August, the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait was set into motion. And events would lead to the largest movement of Marine Corps forces since World War II. Between August of 1990 and January of 1991, there were some 24 infantry battalions, 40 squadrons, and more than about 92,000 Marines that were deployed to the Persian Gulf as part of Operation Desert Shield and Operation Desert Storm, which eventually launched on 16 January of 1991, the day the air campaign actually began down there in Kuwait into Iraq. Now, the main attack just started overland beginning on 24 February and the 1st and 2nd Marine Divisions, they breached the Iraqi defense lines and stormed into occupied Kuwait by the morning of February 28th. But 100 hours after the ground war began, almost the entire Iraqi army and the Kuwaiti theater of operations had been encircled. 4,000 tanks destroyed, 42 divisions destroyed or rendered ineffective at that time. Overshadowed by the events in the Persian Gulf in 1990, 1991, there was a number of other significant Marine deployments that demonstrated the Corps' flexibility and the rapid response that they're capable of. And including among these were non-combatant evacuation operations in Liberia, Somalia, and humanitarian life-saving operations in Bangladesh, the Philippines, and in northern Iraq. In December of 1992, the Marines landed in Somalia, marking the beginning of a two-year humanitarian relief operation in that feminine-striking and strife-torn nation. In another part of the world, the Marine Corps aircraft supported operations deny flight in the no-fly zone over Bosnia and Herzegovina uh, in 1994. The Marines once again demonstrated their ability to protect the American citizens in the remote parts of the world when a Marine task force evacuated U.S. citizens from Rwanda, and the response to civil unrest in that country at that time. Now, closer to home. Marines went ashore in September of 94 into Haiti as part of the U.S. force participation in the restoration of democracy in that country. And during that same time period, Marines were actively engaged in providing assistance in the nation's counter-drug effort and assisting in the battling wildfires in the western United States and aiding in flood and hurricane relief operations. The Marine Corps continued its tradition of innovation to meet the challenges of the new century. 
The Marine Corps Warfighting Laboratory was created in 1995 to evaluate change, assesses in the impact of new technologies on warfighting, and to expedite the introduction of the new capabilities into the operation forces of the Marine Corps. There were exercises such as Hunter Warrior, Urban Warrior, and they were designed to explore future tactical concepts and to examine the facets of the military operations in urban environments, which would play a critical role when they headed into the war on terrorism. In the 1990s, the Marine Corps units deployed to several African nations, and this included Liberia, the Central African Republic, Zaire, and Eritrea, in order to provide the security and the assistance in the evacuation of the American citizens during periods of political and civil instability that were going on in that nation at that time. Humanitarian disaster relief operations were also conducted by the Marine Corps in 1998 in Kenya and the Central American nations of Honduras, Nicaragua, El Salvador, and Guatemala in 1999. Uh, Marine units, they also deployed to Kosovo in support of Operation Allied Force. And soon after the September 2001 terrorist attack on New York City and Washington, D.C., Marine units then deployed to the Arabian Sea and in November set up a forward operations base in southern Afghanistan as part of the Operation Enduring Freedom. Now we're getting to more of our time frame when we know when all this stuff was going on. In 2002, the Marine Corps continued to play that key role in the global war on terrorism. You know, Marines operated in diverse locations from Afghanistan, the Arabian Gulf, to the Horn of Africa, and the Philippines. In 2003, it saw the largest deployment of Marine forces since the Persian Gulf War of 1990 and 1991, when 76,000 Marines deployed to the Central Command Area for combat operations against Iraq. Now, this is where we are in our reading of our book with the 1st Marine Division in 2003. No greater friend, no worst enemy with the division being part of these 76,000 Marines that were deployed into that area for operations against Iraq. The 1st Marine Division Expeditionary Force, including Task Force Tarawa and the United Kingdom's 1st Armored Division, were the very first conventional ground units to enter Iraq in late March as part of Operation Iraqi Freedom. There were also fixed wing and helicopter aircraft from the 3rd Marine Air Wing, that did provide continuous close air and assault support to the Marines' coalition units as they drove deeper into Iraq. On the ground, Marines from 1MEF moved nearly 400 miles from Kuwait border to Baghdad to create Iraq and eliminated the large organized resistance by Iraqi military forces. Now, even though the first MEF would transition to stabilization and security operations and then redeployed to the U.S. by late September, 1MEF began preparing for a return to Iraq in early of 2004. This adaptability and reliability of the forces continued to be highlighted around the world from Horn of Africa, Haiti, and the Philippines. Across the United States, the units from both coasts fought and contained wildfires, also supported hurricane relief efforts in various parts of the country. So as you can see, the Marine Corps is not only used for combat, but we also do a lot of humanitarian help whether it's here in the United States or we help in other areas, but we do a lot of that stuff too. It's not just about going in country and, you know, destroying the enemy and then coming back home. 
in December of 2004, there was a tsunami struck numerous nations in the Indian Ocean region that killed more than 150,000 and caused an enormous amount of devastation. Again, the Marine units from 3rd MEF were immediately deployed to Thailand, Indonesia, Sri Lanka to assist in the disaster relief operations that they needed at that time. In the early 2005 timeframe, the 2nd Marine Expeditionary Force replaced 1 MEF in Iraq as the primary force began to shift to the partnership operations with the Iraqi Security Forces, and then Marine units continued to provide air and ground support to operations enduring freedom in Afghanistan closer to home. The flexibility and the responsiveness of the Navy Marine Corps team was exhibited during September and October when nearly 3,000 Marines and sailors conducted search and rescue humanitarian relief and disaster recovery operations in Louisiana and Mississippi in the aftermath of Hurricanes Katrina and Rita. And today, the Marine Corps stands ready to continue its proud tradition. If those so violently fought and died in Bella Wood, Iwo Jima, the Chosen Reservoir, Kaisan, combining a long and proud heritage of faithful service to the nation with the resolve to face tomorrow's challenges and will continue to keep the Marine Corps the best of the best. And you know, I couldn't say it even better than that because that's just a brief synopsis of the history of the Marine Corps and some of the things that the Marine Corps did. And today, the Marine Corps does continue that tradition, and we want to make sure we keep that tradition alive to ensure that everything that was done by those Marines before us, all their sacrifices and everything that they did is not going to go to waste and it's not going to be forgotten. So as we move into the closer time here in November, happy early birthday, Marines, and let's celebrate this whole entire end of the month. And of course, the whole month of November up to 10 November 1775, we will continue to celebrate the birth of our beloved Marine Corps. Are you looking for a photographer who can capture the most important moments in your life? Look no further than Miguel Signs Photography. Miguel Signs is an award-winning photographer with a passion for capturing the beauty and emotions of weddings, family portraits, and special events. With years of experience and a creative eye, Miguel Signs will create stunning images that you'll treasure for years to come. Whether you're looking for a traditional wedding album, a unique family portrait, or a professional headshot for your business, Miguel Signs Photography has the expertise to bring your vision to life. From the initial consultation to the final product, Miguel Signs will work with you every step of the way to ensure that your images reflect your unique style and personality. Don't settle for mediocre photographs that simply document an event. Trust Miguel Signs Photography to create timeless images that capture the essence of your special moments. Book your session today and experience the magic of Miguel Signs Photography. Visit Miguel Signs Photography online at miguelsignsphotography.com to see examples of his work and schedule your appointment today. What we're going to do right here is go back. Way back. Back into time. Since we're now staged and ready to go across the Iraqi border in Kuwait and the Iraqis, could see exactly what they were doing, where they were staged. They were sending patrols down there to observe along the border and moving a lot of their pieces, their artillery, rocket systems, all those things into place. Now the time is getting closer and closer for the division to actually head into Iraq and conduct this mission of everything that they had rehearsed 
everything they had planned and get it put into place because now it was about that time. So let's take a look now at 19 March, how the division was now poised for battle. On 19 March, as units topped off fuel and ammo at the DA's, selected elements of the division were operating forward in security zones established to prevent enemy insurgents across the border. The west of Highway 80, 3rd LAR Battalion prepared to tie with the Brits on the right with the RCT-7 on the left. Alpha Company 3rd LAR moved north to protect artillery and engineer elements operating along the border. Elements of 3rd Battalion, 7th Marines, 3-7, and 1st Tank Battalion took up positions near southern Kuwait along the berm, approximately 5 kilometers south of the border. To the west, 1st LAR Battalion established a security zone to the far western limits of the division's battle space. These units were to observe a number of interesting activities in the tiny space between two armies poised for battle. The day Major Andy Milborn, a plant officer for RCT-7 staff, was accompanying an attached psychological operations, a PSYOPs, detachment from the U.S. Army's 305th PSYOPs Company, as they moved close to the border to broadcast a surrender message to the Iraqi Armed Forces. Major Milborn was interested to note the Iraqis actually grouping together to listen to the recorded message. At least some of the Iraqis were interested enough to listen. But certainly, their commanders and regime miners would not allow this sort of assembly. I wonder why. We haven't seen any indirect fires from these guys yet, he wondered aloud. There were apparently a few Iraqis who agreed and were not convinced by the PSYOP's message because he had no sooner said the words out loud than the Iraqis obligated the PSYOP's team by lobbing mortar rounds at them. U.S. Army Sergeant Thomas Stifley, the team chief, was not amused. From that point on, Sergeant Stifley and Leary were traveling anywhere along with Major Milborn. That evening, President Bush's diplomatic ultimatum to Saddam Hussein expired. The Iraqis had chosen to reject the ultimatum and now faced the reality that the regime would be removed by force. Fellow citizens, events in Iraq have now reached the final days of decision. As we can see, President Bush was not playing around. He was ready to move with force and ready to go. On the night of 19 March, U.S. Navy ships in Arabian Gulf launched over 35 cruise missiles at targets in Baghdad and other strategic sites. The successive activation of wartime air tasking orders, or ATOs, followed the strike. The initiation of the air campaign, a day had arrived. And the division watched the firepower of 3rd Maw begin to shape the positions of the 51st Mechanized Division and the units of Romadia oil fields, in addition to the planned wartime ATOs. The wing had also arranged eight hours of shaping, which had planned to be cut and pasted into the last OSW ATO. Aviation fires against ground targets commenced immediately and took a significant toll against the enemy's artillery. 
The G2, the G3 fire sections were able to confirm the destruction of the troublesome battery of long-range GNH-45 artillery pieces by having the VMU fly over the Pioneer of the position. As the Marines of the division would later attest, these aviation fires had devastating effects in the Iraqi defenders and began to impact the decision process of many Iraqis who were undecided about whether they should stay and fight the Americans or run away. The division's CG entered the main CP and set MOP-1. He approved the 11th Marines to move north to the border area in their PAs. The artillery units quickly moved up under the cover of darkness. As the division sat poised, waiting for the word to go, the Iraqis reiterated their intent to defy President Bush's ultimatum by launching volleys of long-range missiles at major U.S. bases in Kuwait. The Iraqis chose to target major facilities at Camp Doha, Ali al-Salam Air Base, and Al-Jabbar Air Base, as well as Camp Commando, which housed the division's support area and the MEF-CP. The theater had established a Scud beeper warning system to give early indication of missiles launched out of Iraq, and the beepers began to repeatedly sound off in the divisions and the RCT CPs. In each CP, the buzz of normal activity would cease whenever the beeper went off. Everyone would stop and look at the senior watch officer as he fumbled with the device and then squinted and read the message out of the tiny screen. This day, the beepers were going off at a cyclic rate, and every time a missile launch was reported, the division upgraded to MOP-2. The Iraqis were not going to get a free shot at an unprepared division. Almost every time, the alert was quickly followed by a report of a Patriot batteries located strategically around the northern Kuwaiti had destroyed the missiles. The initial tension soon subsided and the Marines grew accustomed to the, throughout the unseen, unheard missile battle taking place in the skies over their heads. Over the course of the day, only a few missiles made their way through the defensive umbrella, and all impacted in the open desert or splashed into the Gulf of Kuwait. Of the Iraqi missilers, one missile, a Chinese-built sea cracker, brought the war close to home to the division's Marines located at Camp Commando as it impacted just outside of the camp, less than a kilometer from the division's administrative center, the DAC. This was the first and only a very few missiles that struck civilian targets in Kuwait City, including a pier and a shopping mall. The scud alarm sounded 38 times at commando camp, but the Patriots successfully destroyed all the other missiles. The Marines at Camp Commando were made well aware that the defensive systems were not infallible, and that they too were very much a part of this war. Fortunately, none of these missiles were armed with chemical warheads. So as we can see, now they were starting to fire those missiles into the areas. And we can remember, or at least I can remember, that when we, as the 11th Marines, as they stated, that we were told to go to our positions and prepare to engage the enemy across the border, that we could hear the missiles flying overhead and heading down there to all those different camps. But the Patriot system that they had, wow, what an amazing system because that system was amazing in intercepting those missiles when they went overhead. So needless to say, they did save countless lives because they were able to stop those missiles. And luckily, none of those missiles did have any kind of nuclear capabilities or any kind of gas or anything in them. They were just explosive warheads. 
But with that being said, it's about time. It's about time that the division is going to get ready to engage and proceed to go across the border. And D-Day is coming for us, the 11th Marines, to show our capabilities and what we are more than capable of doing. Hero Highlight. Captain John Harold Leems, United States Marine Corps. Captain John Harold Leems earned the Medal of Honor as a second lieutenant on Iwo Jima, 7 March 1945. John Harold Leems was born in Chicago, Illinois, 8 June 1921. He attended St. Hilary Prokel School Quigley Preparatory Seminary and graduated from St. George High School in Evanston, Illinois. In 1939, at St. George's, he played varsity football and track, was sports editor of the school paper, and was an assistant scoutmaster in the Boy Scouts of America. After high school, he attended Northwestern University for two and a half years and worked part-time at the Commonwealth Edison Company. He left college in 1941 following his marriage and worked subsequently for the Standard Oil Company the Pashan Construction Company, the Naval Station at Great Lakes, Illinois, and the Austin Construction Company. Enlisting in the Marine Corps Reserve on 27 November 1942, he completed recruit training at San Diego and was assigned to the 3rd Service Battalion, 3rd Marine Division. He left for overseas duty with the unit on 23 February 1943. After four months in New Zealand and two months at Guadalcanal, he was selected for officer training and returned to the United States in September of 1943. He was commissioned a Marine Second Lieutenant on March 1944 at Quantico, Virginia. On 29 of the year, Second Lieutenant Leems went overseas again and rejoined the 3rd Marine Division. This time, he was a company officer in a rifle company of 1st Battalion, 9th Marines. In October and November, he was actively engaged in patrolling against Japanese holdouts in Guam. Landing on Iwo Jima on 24 February 1945, he was slightly wounded by a shell fragment on 27 February, but returned to duty on the same day. On 3 March, due to heavy casualties, he became company commander, a position usually filled by a captain. On 7 March, he led his company in a surprise attack against a strongly fortified enemy hill position, succeeded in capturing the objective, and in spite of withering fire, returned forward to rescue two of his wounded men. Promoted to first lieutenant, 1 June 1945, he returned to the United States that November and was detached from the active duty on 25 January 1946. On 14 June of that year, he was temporarily recalled to active duty to receive the Medal of Honor presented to him by President Truman in a White House ceremony. A member of the 9th Reserve District, he was subsequently promoted to captain in March in the Marine Corps Reserve in 1956 and retired 1 July 1962. He died in June 1985 at the age of 64. The quarterdeck. 19 March. The time is coming near as the division is getting prepared to go ahead and engage in combat in actual Iraq. 
President Bush is not taking any chances or anything. He gave him 48 hours. 48 hours for them to get out of there and leave the country of Iraq. They're playing a chess game. And he's not playing. So now the division is ready. They're prepared. 11th Marines is now in position getting ready for the word to go ahead and engage the enemy. So 19 March is a day, a day that I remember clearly because we were prepared. We were already laid in the asthma of the fire in preparation to engage those targets because we had pre-planned targets that we already had all the data that we needed in order to engage those targets. But the main one was going to be Staff One Hill to ensure that we took that target out and the 51st mechanized unit that was coming with all their tanks heading directly towards us. But next week, we're going to go ahead and talk about 20 March, the clearing the obstacles and the passage of lines into Kuwait. Now, as we know, they already did some of the berms are gone. All the wire has been removed and they were ready to go in preparation of heading into Iraq. So next week, we'll take a look at that and see exactly what's going on with that and how the division is going to go ahead and engage the Iraqi army now that they're prepared to head into Iraq. As always, I want to go ahead and thank all my loyal listeners. I want to thank all you, the new listeners that we had. And just as a reminder that we are available on all of the podcasting applications that are out there, as well as our Facebook page, The Quarterdeck with Gunny Size. As I mentioned to everybody last week, our podcast is now being distributed over Spotify. So if you go ahead and go into the actual Spotify application, it'll give you a couple other options to do that you're not able to do in the other applications that are go ahead and broadcasting our podcast. So again, I hope you guys have a great week. Enjoy the time as we get closer and closer to Halloween and we get closer to the celebration of the birthday of the United States Marine Corps. So until then, this is Miguel, the Gunny Signs, sounding Liberty Call. Get out the bus! I do solemnly swear. I do solemnly swear. That I will support you. The Constitution of the United States. Against all enemies, foreign and domestic.